Today, we will be finishing up our brief Christmas series on the concept of waiting, hopefully with a discussion that points us forward to what the waiting is that should really characterize every day of our lives. We find ourselves in the book of Acts today, chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. As we begin, let us find ourselves there. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood before them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. This is the word of God. Please be seated. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of watching a young kid open up a lot of presents, or just even more than one present. If you have seen it, you have witnessed an incredible shift, a swing back and forth between extremes of emotions that child experiences from one second to the other. If you haven't ever experienced that or observed that, I can walk you through what basically happens. That child especially a younger child, comes into the situation maybe on a Christmas morning with a level of expectation and anticipation that really has no justification because they seem to fully believe whatever they're about to open will change their lives forever. That child then sits before the first present and with great joy and anticipation, they begin to unwrap it. In the course of just a split second, something happens in the mind of that child. They see what is under the wrapping paper, and they will either respond with great joy or just basic disgust. And there really is no in-between for a child's responses there. They have not yet learned how to hide disappointment over some toy they didn't ask for or some piece of clothing they would never want. As the gift giver, you hope that they will respond in great joy, but regardless of the level of joy, you also know that it will very quickly, if not immediately, be eclipsed by that second wave of anticipation as they look past that last gift and look on to the next gift, asking, okay, well, what's next? Regardless of how much they love that first gift, they assume the next gift must be better. It will be better. And so, again, with great anticipation, they begin to unwrap that gift. And in that split second, again, they will respond in great joy or great disappointment, only to then replace that joy or disappointment with anticipation over and over and over again. A child, it seems, struggles to really rest in that moment, don't they? They don't understand what it means to really take in the moment, experience the, the gift they've been given, appreciate the, the sense of gift that has been handed over. We understand this is just part of them being children. And most of us, of course, I think, understand we all do the exact same thing day to day. Even as adults, while we might hide certain feelings of disappointment when receiving gifts we don't necessarily want, we are always, just like children, always asking that question of, okay, well, what's next? Okay, this is great, but surely there's something more. We do this with physical gifts, 
We do this even with blessings that God gives us. As we experience joy, we are always anticipating what's next. Always waiting for that one thing, that, that one experience that will bring fulfillment that can last. Incredibly, as we come to Acts 1, we see the disciples of Christ, in essence, go through that exact same swing in emotion. For these disciples have just recently experienced the greatest thing they could have ever possibly imagined. They have seen their Lord and Savior rise from the dead. One can only imagine the level of joy that they must have felt upon first seeing Jesus. And yet, very quickly, after seeing Jesus, after just a short time, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, with the disciples, in essence, doing that which every little kid does. They, they move from that moment of great joy, and they begin asking, okay, Jesus, that was great, but what's next? Okay, Jesus, that, that was really good, but, but now surely there's something better around the corner. We too tend to do the same things with the gift of God. Even when we speak of Christmas and the kingdom of God that Christ inaugurated in his birth and ultimately in his death and resurrection. But what Acts 1 reminds us and what the response of Christ teaches us is that the gift of the kingdom is, is actually infinitely better than we could ever possibly imagine. But it's only when we really take a step back and, and examine the words of Christ that we see in this one gift of the kingdom, we do really have everything we could have ever possibly wanted, everything mankind have, had waited to receive. As we'll see in our text this morning, we see that includes a new identity that trumps every other identity. We see it includes an unparalleled divine sense of power that is handed down. We see it even speaks to a clear calling that should define our daily lives. And ultimately, we see that in that kingdom that which was brought to us by Christ, we have our undying hope that can never be taken away. And so I pray that as we examine this passage today, we might be renewed with that proper sense of waiting, not waiting that comes out of disappointment, but waiting that comes out of a proper understanding of the magnitude of what's been handed down to us in Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Before we get, dig into that, though, let me begin us in a word of prayer and ask for God's blessing upon our time. Father in heaven, we again thank you for today. God, we thank you for the joy that many of us were able to experience on Christmas. I pray that all of us were able to spend time with loved ones, that all of us were able to, to be reminded of, at least for a day, of the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. But God, in the midst of all that joy, I also recognize there are many here and many who are watching online who perhaps were unable to experience that joy because of COVID. They were unable to experience that joy because of what this year has brought them. God, many people came into Christmas mourning the loss of loved ones. They came into Christmas mourning the loss of relationships that have been broken by various causes of strife. And so, God, we come to you this morning recognizing that as great as Christmas is, as great as it is to spend time with family, that we all need something more than that. And we praise you, for we recognize in Acts 1 this morning that the gift of the kingdom you've given us in your Son is greater than that. It is infinitely greater than anything we experienced on Christmas Day. And as we explore Acts 1 today, Lord, I pray that we might be renewed with a sense of just appreciation for what you've given us, God. Might we understand that the identity and power and calling and hope that are encapsulated in this kingdom are so much better than we could ever imagine. In fact, the the glory of each of these truths only grows, Lord, as we grow older and examine them more and more. And so, God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning. God, might this be a time of celebration truly as we examine the kingdom. For those who have not yet put their faith in you this morning, God, I pray that you use this time 
to open their eyes to their greater need of you, to open their eyes to their need of the kingdom of God, and that they might understand how they might too enter. God, remove all distractions from us, God. Cause us to be focused entirely upon your word. Holy Spirit, be at work to convict our hearts, to draw us near to the Son. And Jesus, might you be praised in all of this. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. As we examine our passage today, as I mentioned, we'll, we'll see how the kingdom not only gives us a new identity, but it also gives us this unparalleled sense of power, calling, and hope. We begin with that first and perhaps most foundational aspect of the kingdom, that is this new identity that it provides. We begin by seeing how the disciples themselves misunderstood that identity. To see their misunderstanding, pick it up again with you, if you will, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. There we find this passage. So when they, that is, the disciples with Christ, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And he goes on to, to give this great commission. It is interesting that, that having experienced everything the disciples had experienced, that is, having experienced the, the resurrection of Christ, that their focus immediately comes back to this, this very narrow point in their theology. For as they see the resurrected Christ, in their minds they are thinking, okay, the kingdom of God is here, and, and that must mean at least one thing. That one thing being that ethnic Israel will be restored. That was their central hope, their central focus. And, and in finding their identity in that focus, they are doing something that is at least in part biblical. For these Jews, these Israelites, are referencing promises made to the Israelites in the Old Testament. You can find a variety of promises along those lines. In books like Jeremiah, you don't need to turn back there, but in passages like Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 7, we find this promise of God given to his people, ethnic Israel. There, God says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought, us, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but... As the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Similar promises are made earlier in Jeremiah. In chapter 16, verses 14 through 15, similar promises can be found throughout other prophets like Isaiah. Time and time again, throughout the Old Testament, there is this promise to ethnic Israel saying, I will bless you, Israel saying to these great sons and daughters of Abraham that the promises that Abraham received will be ultimately fulfilled. And part of that fulfillment is in the, the restoration of their nation. As the disciples look upon the risen Christ, then they understandably assume, well, this must be it. We are sons of Israel, and that must mean we will now be restored in our homeland. The disciples are simply wanting to know what this means for their most immediate context, their most immediate concerns. And we can certainly relate to that. Yet as Jesus responds to them, he, he immediately offers a soft rebuke to their question, doesn't he? For he refuses to tell them when that restoration will happen. And instead, he, he in essence is telling them they need to broaden their horizons. For he says again, it is not for you to know times or epics, so I'm not going to tell you when that's going to happen. But verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
It's interesting that Jesus would answer their question that focused entirely on their ethnic identity and immediately force them to consider not just Israel, but all of the nations. In essence, Jesus is reminding them that their identity is no longer centrally found in Israel, is it? No, it's found in this new identity in the kingdom. And in this new identity, Christ's concern is not just for ethnic Israel, although they still play a part, but rather it's for all the world. We see this not just in the response of Christ, but if you read through the book of Acts, you see the story really play out where the disciples following the commands of Christ do exactly what he says. They, they make disciples and they, they are his witnesses beginning in their homeland. But eventually that witness is spread out and you see, shockingly, sons of Abraham declared in places like Samaria. These remote areas that would have been enemies to the Jews and yet are brought under those same blessings. In essence... The book of Acts reveals exactly what the Apostle Paul describes at great lengths, that which we discussed two weeks ago. For in books like Galatians and, and elsewhere, Paul demonstrates and shows how that, that once precious identity of being sons and daughters of Abraham is now expanded to include not just ethnic Israel, but, but all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. For Jesus has fulfilled the promises made to Abraham. We see this, for instance, explicitly declared in Galatians chapter 3. Verses 6 through 9, there Paul says, Even so, Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Oftentimes, we don't really grasp or, or I think appreciate the significance of what Paul is saying, the significance of what Christ declares. This idea that you and I, Gentiles, by ethnicity, could be counted as sons and daughters of Abraham. And yet, time and time again, it is that identity that's highlighted in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, it's because of what we discussed from Matthew 1. Jesus, as the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham, has extended the blessing to all nations. And what we must understand then is that as we come into the kingdom, it is that identity, that identity of, of new sons and daughters of Abraham that trumps everything else. It trumps whatever ethnicity you have. It trumps whatever you tend to, to grasp onto. And this is so important for us, even in our culture today, isn't it? For we all still love talking about our identity. We love taking pride in, in certain aspects of your identity. Maybe, maybe you're proud of your family. Maybe you're proud of, of your family name. I'm a Beswick. I love being a Beswick. Honestly, I do. I love the fact that none of you in here have ever met anyone else named Ben Beswick. I love that. I think it's so wonderful. I love that there were no other kids in my school growing up that had that last name. That, of course, can carry with it other negative connotations as well, because a lot riding on that, right? I can wreck the entire family name with one bad year. But I love that. I, I take great pride in being a Beswick. Maybe you take pride in, in that identity as well, or perhaps many of us can appreciate the, the pride that we feel in identifying with, with our state. Again, not to upset any of you, but I'm a proud Texan at heart. I love being welcomed here to Southeast Missouri. I do. But I will always be a Texan. And there's part of me that takes pride in that, as silly as I know that sounds to many of you. But I love that part of my identity. Maybe some of you feel that about Southeast Missouri. Maybe you feel about it more largely about your country. We live in a proud country. It's great to be an American, isn't it? 
we're blessed with a great number of things being in this country. And so many of us will say, America, America first, America is everything. That is what I want to be known as. All these things have good elements to it. But compare your national identity to being a son of Abraham. There's no comparison, is there? It's pathetic. No, your, your identity as a child of God, as a son of daughter of Abraham, that's everything. That actually means something in eternity. Not your family name, not where you were born, not where you were raised, not your country, not your job. Nothing else matters compared to this identity. It is this identity that is only found in the kingdom. And it's this identity and this identity alone that matters. And so like the Israelites here in Acts 1, like those who came out of that Israelite background, we too need to understand that one of the things that makes the kingdom so great is it, it gives us a new identity. It gives us something to place our hope in. And this is so important, especially in light of what I mentioned in my prayer, knowing that, that we're coming out of a difficult year. And many of you are, are coming in, in the midst of great loss, and perhaps you were proud of your family at one point in time, but, but maybe at this point in time that family's been diminished. Relationships have been jeopardized. Marriages have come to an end. And if you had once placed all of your pride, all of your focus in that family name, then you realize just how fragile that identity is. The same thing is true if we place our identity in our country, and our state. Those things can crumble, and they will crumble. But the one identity that will always sustain us is this one new identity that is found in Christ and Christ alone. Because of Christ, because of his kingdom, we have our new identity. And we should take great pride in that identity. We should, go, we should see to it that we are carefully loving those others who are of that same identity, making sure we're not unnecessarily dividing ourselves against others with that same identity, knowing, again, this is the only identity that matters. This, is must, this must be understood in our culture today as you commonly see many sons and daughters of Abraham needlessly pick at one another, needlessly divide against each other, going out of their way to find reasons to argue and debate doing so without realizing, of course, the cost of what they're causing of that division. No, our identity is precious. And like these original disciples, we need to be reminded of this so that our horizons are constantly being broadened, so that we're constantly reminded of the fact that we are part of an elite group, sons and daughters of Abraham, because of Christ. Having said that, we understand as we move on in Acts 1 that it was not just the question of identity that the disciples were confused about and that we tend to be confused about as well. We also see confusion when it comes to the unparalleled power of the kingdom of Christ. Again, examine with me verses 6 through 9, or yeah, 6 through 8 of Acts 1. Once again, we read, so when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of, to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Again, we, we, are, we must be careful to understand what these disciples must have been thinking when they asked Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? For they are not simply speaking of, of some spiritual realm they're hoping Jesus begins. No, they're looking for very much a, a physical, political kingdom for Christ to initiate. And in so doing, they're looking for Christ to finally, finally exert the type of power they've been wanting him to exert throughout his entire earthly ministry. And as we've seen throughout his earthly ministry, the disciples, 
basically consistently misunderstood what true power was, didn't they? For when they thought of power, they thought of, well, what Rome thought of. They thought of military might. They thought of uh, some savior that could come in riding on a horse and kill all his enemies. That was power to the disciples. And we see that misunderstanding on display throughout their time with Jesus Christ. One of my favorite examples of this misunderstanding of power comes back in the Gospel of Luke. And if you would, turn back to Luke. For I think this so powerfully displays just how deep their misunderstanding went. In Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46, you have this great exchange between Jesus and his disciples. And in verses 46 through 48, it begins with with Jesus doing that which he was famous for a couple times. When he takes a child close to him and he says, in Luke chapter 9, verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So here we see Jesus saying, okay, this is greatness. This is power. This, This is what true authority looks like. Taking that which is worthless to society, but showing love, showing grace. Here we immediately see the disciples misunderstand. Verse 49, John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. You have this great exchange, right? So, okay, Jesus, that kid's great, but there was this guy who claimed to be a believer who was doing great things, and we told him to stop, and he wouldn't, right? And, and so there's this confusion as to how do we handle these other disciples that aren't necessarily with us. They're still doing things in the name of Jesus, but, but we want all the power, Jesus. How can we make him stop? Jesus, don't. If they're not against you, they're, they're with us, right? That's fine. Let them be. A little time passes, and in verse 51, we pick up in another, uh, another sequence of events that again demonstrates how clueless they are as to what power is, what this looks like. In verse 51, we read, when the days were approaching for his ascension, that is exactly what we read about next, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Again, you see this one-track mind of the disciples. This one-track mind that tells them true power rests solely with them. And they're willing to help out Jesus whenever he wants it, aren't they? Jesus, do you want us to get rid of these kids? Jesus, do you want us to get rid of these other people that are performing miracles in your name? Jesus, do you want us to just kill all these Samaritans? We'll do it, God. We're willing to step in. But of course, each time Jesus rebukes them, and each time Jesus is revealing to his disciples, they misunderstand where authority lies. They misunderstand the type of power that Jesus came to demonstrate. The disciples do this frequently throughout the Gospels. You see Peter do it famously in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he thinks he needs to protect Jesus as if Jesus does not have the power to defend himself. And so Peter cuts off the ear of the servant. Time and time again, the disciples think that's power. And time and time again, we do the same. Time and time again, we still assume that power looks like what our culture says power looks like. We want to be powerful and in our minds that means we want to be in control. 
We want to show everyone how smart we are. We want to show everyone how strong we are. We want to show everyone how unstoppable we are. Even in the passage that Pastor Jeremy read earlier in Romans chapter 8, you hear people quote that language and they speak of, of living a life in which they are defeating. They live, a, they live a life in which they are winning and they turn that into language of climbing the corporate ladder, winning in sports competitions. They reduce the power of the kingdom to some trivial competition. And in direct contradiction to that, Jesus time and time again shows them, no, that's not power. That's not the power of the kingdom. Jesus, of course, shows that in his own earthly ministry, where in response to this confusion of the disciples, Jesus regularly points to him being lowly, being humble, being gentle. Jesus takes children in. Jesus heals those who are worthless to society. Jesus, time and time again, does that which would be seen as pathetic and weak. But in so doing, he's showing his disciples, this is power. This is authority. I think oftentimes as believers, we, we're attracted to those passages where Jesus turns the, te- the, t- uh, the tables over in the temple. As if that's everything Jesus always did. But far more frequently, Jesus was meek. Jesus was lowly. Jesus was kind. Jesus was compassionate. That's the power of Christ on display. Most importantly, Jesus was raised from the dead. That is his power. And as we jump back to Acts 1, we see that the power that Jesus is handing down is not that far from that sort of power. For again, look with me at Acts 1. In verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even in the remotest parts of the earth. As Jesus speaks of the power that is going to be handed down to these disciples, again, he's not speaking of the type of power the disciples were hoping to receive. He's speaking of the power that will be given to them by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has spoken a great deal on that Holy Spirit earlier in his ministry. Passages like John 14. If you go back and read John 14, you see the type of power the Spirit gives. is the power of being a comfort. Power to convict the world of sin, but the power to provide counsel for believers. It's the power to remind believers what Christ has taught. It's the power that allows a believer to, to maintain discipline and obedience. And even in Acts 1.8, what is the power of the Holy Spirit meant to be used for? To preach Christ. Again, it's not the type of power that will in any way, shape, or form impress the world. In fact, Paul, when speaking of the gospel... When speaking of the power, speaks of the fact that this type of power is laughed at by the Corinthians. There is absolutely nothing impressive to them about this level of power. There is absolutely nothing attractive in the eyes of the world, at least in terms of authority and and sheer strength. Yet God says, this is the power of the kingdom. This is the power I'm handing you. Not so that you can take some great political office and rule harshly over those that disagree with you. But no, it's power so that you can be obedient. Power that you can love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Power that you can then go and proclaim the gospel to the world around you. This power is incredible, and it's so important for us to understand that, that while in this text God, Jesus says this power will be given to you, we must understand that, that we live in a day and age in which this power has already been given to us. The disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And you see that in that great day of Pentecost. You see this glorious sign in which the the believers speak in tongues. And we see a variety of miracles they then perform that that are demonstrations of the power of the Spirit. 
we're not given those same signs in terms of tongues, in terms of miracles when we receive the Holy Spirit. But we must understand that we are still indwelt with the exact same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that indwelt the Apostle Paul indwells you. Indwells me. The exact same Holy Spirit who drove these, these once cowardly disciples to preach boldly on the street corners to the point in time where they were killed, that same Spirit dwells in you and me. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for a week or for 50 years. You have the power of God, the Spirit, indwelling you. Believer, do you understand that gift? Do you understand the blessing that, that that gives us, the abilities that gives us? Do you understand that none of us have to wait for some special training to do what God has called us to do? We all have the ability because we're all indwelled with the Spirit if we've put our faith in Christ. This is an unbelievable but, but true gift of the kingdom of Jesus. And it is a gift that, yes, looks foreign to the world around us and will never impress the world around us. But it is a gift that is from God. And it is the gift that prepares us and equips us for every good work that God has set before. And so regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how harsh the world might be around you, regardless of how unimpressed unbelievers might be with the gospel, you have no excuse, believer. You have everything you need dwelling within you. For God indwells us. And it is God who gives us that power to preach Christ, to withstand temptation, to do that which Christ has called us to do. And it is that to which we then turn to our third point of the kingdom. That third point being, to a certain extent, what we already mentioned. It's the clear calling of the kingdom. Again, when the disciples ask their question, verse 6, if this is the time when the kingdom will be restored, they're looking to simply be placed in, in seats of authority. They're looking to rule. Is this the time we get to do this, God? But as Jesus responds to them, he speaks to a different calling, one that is less attractive perhaps, but one that carries with it an unbelievable gift and opportunity. For again, picking it up in Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This calling could not be any more simple and straightforward. And yet it is a calling that we continually overlook. For it just doesn't carry with it all that much glamour, does it? We want to believe that the God's calling in our life means something great. And, and a lot of us buy into this belief that, that what God wants from us is some great mystery. And as we grow older, eventually the mystery will be uncovered and the will of God will be revealed. That mysterious will of God. The will of God is crystal clear in Scripture. It's this. It's for us to be witnesses. And what does it mean to be a witness? Well, again, you don't have to be a great theologian to understand this. To be a witness just means you have been shown something, and so you will now say something about it. Throughout the Old Testament, it carries with it a great deal of, of judicial connotations. And so you have witnesses in the court of law that simply report that which they've seen. To argue their case, to be a part of the case that is being argued. The same truth holds, uh, holds the same as you come to the New Testament. And time and time again, the New Testament disciples, the New Testament followers of Christ, present themselves as nothing more than witnesses. They're not given some intricate, elaborate, philosophical argument. They're just simply given Christ. And so time and time again, you hear Paul say, I came to you to preach Christ crucified. 
Right? Was Paul smart enough to argue a, a great deal of philosophy? Yes, of course. Could Paul have made an argument that would have made him look far more impressive, far more attractive? Yes, of course. But did Paul waste his time with that? No. Paul used the philosophy of his day to, to point people to Christ. Paul was brilliant in his presentation, but ultimately, at the core of Paul's message was this simplistic witness. This witness to the reality of Christ and what Christ has, has convinced him of, what Christ has demonstrated. In passages like 2 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks to how that calling applies ultimately to all believers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you can hear this language of Paul. In chapter 5, verse 20 through 21. There, sa- there Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here the language is the language of ambassadors of Christ, but it's the same language as witness. The same basic concept. Believer, if you are in Christ, if you are in the kingdom, your number one priority is to be a witness for Christ, is to to proclaim the gospel to the world around you. And this doesn't mean that we need to quit our jobs or drop out of school to go on a street corner and evangelize, right? It's great if you want to go evangelize on the street. It simply means that this is the filter through which we do everything we do. And so as we're at our jobs, we're doing our jobs as, first and foremost, ambassadors of Christ. And so we maintain proper character, and we take advantage of the opportunities to preach the gospel when they arise. We are still good employees, but we do so always in service of the king, always looking for those opportunities. At school, young girls and, and, and boys, this is your job. If you are in Christ, you are to be a student that is honoring to God. And when the opportunity arises to talk to your friends about Jesus, maybe as you go back to school from break and, and you hear people talk about Christmas, you talk about what you did on Christmas. It's as simple as that. Again, you do not need a degree in theology. You do not need to be an expert in Greek or Hebrew. You just need to know Christ. And if you know Christ, you are able to be an effective witness, for it is ultimately the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. And so as believers who have been brought into the kingdom, we must regularly reflect on this and be thankful for this, for the fact that that God does not set some unbelievably high expectation on what he thinks you will accomplish for him. He simply calls to do the work of a basic witness, a basic ambassador, and so we must rejoice in that clarity. We must pray God for wisdom and how to do it effectively, but we ought to be thankful for the fact that this is something, again, every single one of you can do. Every single one of us has that ability. And so again, these disciples who were so convinced that the kingdom would mean political authority, that it would mean the restoration of Israel, that it would mean some, some special new position for them, needed to be shown that, that, no, the kingdom's far better than that. It's far bigger than that. For it's a kingdom in which you are given a new identity, a kingdom in which you are given a divine sense of power, a kingdom in which your calling is basic, but it is clear. And it is that calling that Christ commands and gives as the final thing he, he offers to his disciples. For as we pick it back up in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we read these words that must have been so anticlimactic to the disciples, or at least very surprising to say the least. Picking up in verse 9, we read, After he had said these things, so having given them that that command of the kingdom, he, that is Jesus, was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, 
Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. This is one of those stories in scripture that I so wish I could go back in time and watch. Yes, of course, to see Jesus ascend, that would be amazing. But I just want to see that, that stunned look on the faces of the disciples. And the shocking response of the angels. The, the angels' response always makes me laugh here. Because these disciples have just seen their resurrected Christ float up into the sky. They are understandably amazed. And the angels suddenly appear and they say, What are you doing? Why are you staring up into the sky? Now, the angels are not insulting these disciples. They're simply speaking to the ultimate meaning of what they've just seen. And it is this ultimate meaning that we find the final point of what is so great about the kingdom. That point being the hope, the undying hope that the kingdom provides. We do not have time to explore the the theology of, of what is represented in this ascension. We spoke of it briefly last week, if you were with us. This ascension, I think, ultimately is is the picture of the the coronation of a king. We understand from other passages that Jesus ascends to return to the right hand of the Father, from which he rules, from which he is our mediator. This ascension is is proof of his resurrection. It's proof of the fact that a sacrifice has been accepted by God. And again, it's at this point that Jesus receives the name that is above every name. But as the angels pick it up in this sequence of events, we realize this ascension also has a very practical implication or application for us all. For this ascension is ultimately proof of the fact that that Jesus came just as was promised and that he will come again just as he has promised. This again is, is perhaps the most important element about the kingdom of Christ that has been given to us. It is this element that, that makes it so much different from any other gift we could ever possibly receive. For every other gift, regardless of how great it is, ultimately dies off. The hope ultimately diminishes as, as physical toys and items break, as other human relationships fade away with years. But with the ascension, we are promised that nothing will ever change. That is to say, the power of Christ, that which is fulfilled, can never be taken away. Your identity will never be diminished. The power of Christ will never be diminished. The, the calling will never change. The kingdom is set in stone for all eternity. And it is in light of that hope, in light of that, of that guarantee, that the angels are able to so boldly tell the disciples, what are you doing? You know what you're supposed to do now. And this is where so oftentimes we tend to fall short. This is so oftentimes, I think, where, where we are too much like the disciples and we fail to appreciate just the practical application of what is before us. We just went through the Christmas season, and this is a great example of, of exactly what we find here in Acts 1. For if you are like me, you get busy throughout the year, don't you? Work overwhelms you, you're overwhelmed with kids, overwhelmed with school, you lose track of time, and suddenly it's Thanksgiving, you realize, oh my goodness, we've got to prepare for Christmas. And for those next few weeks, it's great as you see lights go up and as you see pictures of the baby Jesus in a manger, and perhaps you try hard to really prepare your heart for that time of Advent. Prepare your mind to celebrate just the glory of Christ. And Christmas comes, and it's this great celebration. And the day after Christmas comes, when it's pretty much back to normal. And you say, oh, we've got to take down all these Christmas decorations. Oh, man, we've got to get back to work soon. If you're like me, it's, oh, man, I've got a class coming up, and I have a lot of papers to write. Oh, there's a lot to do. And, and very, very quickly, that glorious celebration of Christmas fades into the background. And, 
and we forget the significance of what's taken place. We stand with our mouths agape at the manger, and then two days later, we're back to our lives as if nothing has happened. But what the hope of the kingdom means to us, or what it ought to mean to us, is that there is this daily practical ramification for what Christ has accomplished. For in being the son of Abraham, Jesus fulfilled those promises and he's given us that new identity. That new identity then defines how we interact with people around us. And being the fulfillment of of David the king, Jesus has provided this new line of authority and we now live daily in submission to that authority and so we live daily in light of what Christ provides. And giving us this clear calling in Acts 1, we live daily with the practical ramifications of, okay, I need to be a witness. What does that look like today? Am I beholding the glory of God? Am I reflecting the glory of God effectively to my kids, to my spouse, to my coworkers? Every day that has practical implications. And every day as the world tries to beat us down and as the world gets darker and darker, it seems we have this precious light of the gospel. The light of the kingdom that reminds us that all hope is not lost. Uh, that, that the great enemy has not won, nor will he ever win, but, but our Savior still reigns supreme. And just as he was ascended and left his disciples in Acts 1, we are guaranteed that someday, soon and very soon, we pray, he will return. And his rule will be just as certain then as it is now, as it was in that day of his first ascension. And so as we consider all these things, for those of you who are unbelievers, I pray that you understand that But what we talk about around Christmas, what what Jesus offers in his kingdom is infinitely better than anything you could possibly ever experience or hope to experience on the side of eternity. Infinitely better than any gift. Infinitely better than any other relationship. Now in Christ, you get an identity that cannot be taken away from you. It cannot be tarnished by some family tragedy, by some virus. It cannot be harmed. It's an identity that is eternal. And with it, it's an identity that that brings with it the indwelling of God. Holy Spirit, who gives us the power to obey, who gives us the power to resist temptation, who gives us the power to rejoice always, even in the midst of a terrible, terrible moment. No, it's a kingdom that brings with it a calling that you can be certain will always be pleasing to your king. A calling that you can be certain you can always fulfill. A calling that that allows you to know without a doubt you can be within the will of God if you simply act as his ambassador. And it's a kingdom that brings with it an undying hope. Unbeliever, put your faith in Jesus Christ before it is too late. For soon he will return just as promised, but if you are not a part of his kingdom, you will be crushed beneath his wrath. And so I pray that you hear his call today, and if you have any questions, as always, please let us know. From brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember that the kingdom really is here. Yes, we still wait for its fulfillment, but it is very real and it is here right now. Are we living like that? Are we living like citizens in God's kingdom or are we grasping to cling to the kingdoms of this world? Let us rejoice in the fact that Christ has given a a crystal clear calling to all of us. Let us rejoice in the fact that, that he gives us all that we need and let us obey with great joy knowing that our Savior, our King, will soon return. And knowing that as He returns, He can and will be pleased by our simple act of obedience. That being said, let me close this in prayer, and we'll close with one final song. Father in heaven, so much more can be said about your kingdom.
And God, I confess in my own mind, it is easy to quickly move past the season of Christmas. It is so easy to move past the celebration of our incarnate Savior and to lose sight of how glorious that is. What a sad statement about how easily distracted we can be. But God, I pray that's not the case this year for us. I pray, God, that we might be struck anew with a a proper appreciation of what Christ has given us, not just in his death, burial, and resurrection, not just an example he sets, but in the kingdom he has inaugurated. God, might we daily live in light of his kingship? Might we daily live in light of the gift that he's given us? Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes and causing us to understand these truths. Might we live daily in line with with your leading us, God? Might we live daily with a proper sense of appreciation of what you do for us daily, Spirit? Might we live according to what you call us to do? Father, we pray that you send your Son back to us soon. Jesus Christ, we pray that you return soon, just as promised. But as we await, Lord, might we await as patient servants, as joyous inhabitants and citizens of the kingdom of God. And as we do that, Lord, might we be a proper light and witness to the dying world around us, that joy can be found, that life can be found, but can only be found in your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, God. Bless us now as we close our time. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.